So thank you both for being with us today. Uh, so again, what I really like to talk about in the beginning is just how each person kind of came up in music and their upbringing and all kinds of different things through, you know, childhood into college and then adult life. So uh, we'll start with Bob. I'm just very interested. And I know somewhat since you were my teacher, I know some of this history, but maybe to reiterate for me and our listeners, um, how did you get into music? How did you get into percussion? And, you know, when did you realize that would be your life career and all this kind of things? And uh, so, yeah. I started in elementary school in the fifth grade band. And I think probably by the time I was 10 or 11, I knew I was going to be in music. And was that percussion that you first started on? Yes, I started on percussion. Throughout high school, I took piano lessons. But I was uh, uh, lucky enough to stay in percussion so I could have a career. So what, was there any reasoning for that? Or was it just kind of luck of the draw? <laughs> I'll say luck I, think it was, because... I think it was luck of the draw. And I mm -hmm. loved playing. Of course, it was drums at that time. And then more and more into keyboards. So. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then I know that um, you studied, I forget the first place. <laughs> I know you studied with Tony Cerrone, but you studied, uh, remind me again, who was the first person you studied and where? The, the most significant of my first teachers was Danley Mitchell, who was Harry Parch's uh, conductor and Harry Parch's heir. So one day, uh, Danley hands me some CDs, or they weren't CDs at that time, they were LPs, and said, I want you to go home and listen to this. So I went home and listened to that, and I came back and I said, well, it's very interesting. And uh, little did I know, a, a few years later, I would be invited to join the Harry Parch group. So it's, that's amazing and for the people that don't know Harry Parch out there. Um, I mean, we could talk about Harry Parch forever, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe we don't have to uh, here, but you know, you can go look that up. So you were doing the Harry Parch thing. Was that in between doing your master's with Tony Cerrone? Uh, that was before my master's with Tony. So gotcha. I did about a year with Harry right when I was graduating and uh, just before I got drafted into the United States Army. That's right. So then there was the Army in between. Yes, and I went. Well. I was lucky enough to get in, in an Army band from there. But I remember the last week I was a civilian, I was recording Delusion of the Fury, which is Harry's uh, last opera. That's so funny to go from that into, you know, <laughs> active <laughs> <Right>. duty. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. So then, yeah, you studied with Tony Cerrone. So for percussionists out there would know that name from the Portraits and Rhythm and other uh, many other things that he's done. Um, so where was that at that you studied with Tony again? I forget the school. Uh, Tony was a principal of the San Francisco Symphony at that time, and the school was San Jose State University. And uh, Tony, of course, loved the orchestral literature, and but he also had a number of uh, composer friends and loved new music and, and premiered a lot of excellent works at San Jose State. Also on the faculty at San Jose at that time was Lou Harrison. And of course, uh, Lou is another one of those uh, extraordinarily important 20th century uh, uh, pioneers in, in the field of, of our study and uh, was a wonderful influence on our percussion ensemble and uh, just a delightful man to be around. Great. So he actually was there and you would 
you did you work on like percussion pieces you know as an yeah, we ensemble worked on a number of we worked on a number of loose pieces and uh, we premiered a few of them i remember premiering the concerto for organ and percussion orchestra of loose and uh, he was always at a lot of our rehearsals and uh you know just a delightful man with a with an extraordinary ear and and knowledge and creativity all you could ask for that's amazing so this is interesting too because then i know and i'll kind of go forward and the backward a bit but then i know um you you started teaching, I believe, at FSU, uh, Florida State University, uh, just for people who don't know what that is. Um, that was your first job, correct? Yes, I was the interim professor of percussion for one year in 1973 at Florida State. And then USF opened up the following year, and I came down here in 74. Mm -hmm. And then and then you also, yep, with the, and you play with the Florida Orchestra as well. I did the Florida Orchestra for 20 seasons, yeah. For 20 seasons, yeah. So that's interesting too, just for me to think about this. Um, I don't know if we, we kind of do this in percussion now, but it's kind of like we got two camps sometimes. I feel like there's like people who just do orchestra and there's people that just do new music or just do solo or something like that. But so coming from playing with Harry Parch and then going into somebody who was more orchestral, was that like a, an odd thing or was it something that just like, well, you just did everything at that time because maybe there's no distinctions Certainly, I don't remember thinking of myself as a new music specialist. When I was studying with Tony Cerrone, uh, I was able to work with the San Francisco Symphony as an extra percussionist on, on several occasions. So uh, I also went to Tanglewood one summer and did the orchestral audition. So the orchestra was an equal part of my life as the new music was. Mm -hmm. And so then going into, because I know, you know, playing with the McCormick Percussion Group and all that stuff, I mean, when did, when did new music start to become, I think, more of a thing that you were doing rather than playing with the orchestra? Was it when you retired from the orchestra? Did it start before that, like when you're playing in the orchestra and maybe you had these thoughts and then once you retired, it became more of a um, important thing? Well, I think... Uh... It happened the second I arrived at USF. I remember before I even set foot on campus, a really wonderful avant-garde composer, Larry Austin, uh, had sent me scores of works to premiere of his. And so uh, I I was in a work called Quadrants Events Complex Number no. 9 for tape and percussion. And I remember preparing that before I arrived on campus. And at that time, Larry Austin hosted a large new music festival called Intermuse, which uh, gained quite a bit of national recognition. So I was always around composers. So I often think of my great, my best teachers as not just Tony Cerrone and Danley Mitchell, but also certainly all the great composers and also great conductors I worked on. That That's what made me who I am. Amazing. Very cool. So I think that's where we'll stop it there. Um, and then we'll, we can talk about it later and, you know, other things that you did at USF and all that great stuff. Um, but we can go to Michael now. So, uh, again, the same question, uh, what got you into music and what, uh, you know, made you keep doing it? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting hearing Bob, some interesting tangents that I might mention uh, at some point. But so uh, I always think about my musical genesis happened in, um, I guess, 1977. 
which I was just a child then. Uh, but uh, this movie came out called Star Wars. <laughs> and I was in love with the, the soundtrack to Star Wars, and I was humming it constantly in my mind. So it was at that point that I was just, I, I, I uh, was drawn to music, and I think, you know, my mom was getting me interested in astronomy and all these other things. Uh, from I think from then on, my life just, you know, started circling the drain. I had to do music. Uh, and, uh, so I first... I couldn't wait to take instruments. I did not come from a household that had a piano or anything, although we, there was like a little electronic organ I used to kind of play around with. Uh, so uh, I, I I couldn't wait to get the, my hands on the first opportunity I had in school to play music. And I actually, my first instrument, surprisingly enough, was violin, but not like because my parents had me take a lesson, but because um, uh, that's the first thing you could take in school. They wouldn't let you take other. I wanted to actually play trombone. Uh but hmm. you couldn't take brass instruments yet. So uh, anyway, to abbreviate that story, um, after living in England for a brief period and then moving back to the U.S. where they shifted when the, when the school system takes instruments, I came right back to the U.S. when I moved to uh, from San Jose to uh, uh, Los Altos, which is a small uh, city close to Cupertino, they offered the opportunity for people to play uh, wind instruments. But at that time, uh, my parents knew I was going to get braces. So my um, my uh, father says, oh, you better not play trombone because you can't play brass instruments if you're going to have braces. Of course, we, that's untrue. But anyway, so I was picking out instruments and I, I said, I always like to do things that no one else was doing or something. I, I don't know. But I thought I was being unique because I'm going, what's a saxophone? So I like signed up for that. I didn't even know what it was. I said, oh, it's that curly J-shaped thing. And so then I found out everyone was playing saxophone and I got to be a pretty um, not, not outstanding saxophonist in the group and uh, kind of going between that and violin. But the uh, the, the big change is I, when I was in uh middle school or junior high at that point because they they um let um certain certain kids with different aptitudes go to sixth grade in the middle school instead of in the elementary school so we had this little tiny group that was just just not a very small very large band but uh the band director said um I'm, I'm going to buy a baritone saxophone. Does anyone want to play baritone saxophone? And for me, this was like, oh, I get to be different from everybody else. Of course, he, he didn't state that I wasn't the one getting the new baritone saxophone. I was the one getting the one with all the rubber bands holding it together. But that didn't matter. And the, 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 the great thing about that group is that because it was so small, I was the only one playing the low notes because everyone was playing treble instruments. Of course, it was mostly going dum, 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 dum. Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> at the educational band music. But there was also a, a jazz program at that school, and they had a, a lab band and a jazz band. So, of course, the very first thing he says, oh, well, you should come and play in the, you know, in the jazz band because, or, or the lab band at first, when I was in sixth grade, uh, because, uh, you know, we could definitely use another baritone saxophone. And, of course, then, uh, you know, after that point, um, my life was destined that then I found my place in the world. And soon after that, I, I, I you know, I was what they called a, a band nerd kind of like to the extreme because I used to have my, my whole social life was hanging out in the band room with the band director. 
Dave Adams, who's a wonderful trumpet player, and he used to expose us. We're in the band room. He used to play stuff like Weather Report in the background and 20th Century Music and all, all this different kind of music that the just myself and a few of the kids used to hang out. And the, he also didn't mind it. He was a little bit like Bob. He didn't mind if we pulled stuff out. Oh, who? what's this instrument laying around? So I started, I picked up contra alto clarinet. So that was my first clarinet. So I started, and later I switched to bass clarinet. But, and in jazz band, especially, I, I, I loved to do the improvisation part. It was very natural for me to uh, improvise. So that led to me... Um, not just playing a baritone saxophone and later bass clarinet, not only let me uh, let me do my own thing, I, I found out that improvisation, I could, could express my own voice. And that uh, that led me to composing, not because I wasn't always composing, but led me to the idea that I should write some of the things down, because I was always improvising uh, anyway in my head. So I should abbreviate a little more, but what some of the things that I got to do, just even through high school, I used to do a lot of different kind of, especially progressive and avant-garde uh, type of jazz things. And one of the things I did was my bass clarinet. I would hook it up through a bunch of, you know, guitar pedals and play it up high and sound like Jimi Hendrix on the bass clarinet and things like that. So, and I was always torn, like, if I wanted to be a jazz musician or a uh, a composer, I, I hadn't known which direction to go. And I kind of tried to do both for quite some time. Uh, but the my parents were firmly um, against me majoring in music at all. They said, oh, no, no, you're going to do something where you're going to make a living. Um, and we have we know too many people who can't make a living. But um, as it happened, the, my senior year in high school, I uh, won the Downbeat Magazine student uh, composer Award for Extended Composition. Cool, very nice. So they yeah. warmed up to a little bit. I won't get into some of the personal reasons, but I ultimately did end up majoring in music. Uh, and even though I wanted to continue being a performer uh, or a professional performer and, and was very popular playing baritone saxophone bass clarinet, my biggest problem is I'd get into a practice room and I would start to you try to practice my instrument and there's a piano sitting over there. And I said, what about this chord? What about this chord? <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I, couldn't, I, I couldn't practice my instruments because I wanted to keep composing. So uh, it, it, it took over. And so uh, I, I was one of those kids in class that came into composition class that uh, because my background in like um, uh, avant-garde jazz and things like that, you know, the only thing I liked was contemporary music. I, I wasn't even interested at that time in learning about anything prior to... Heck, I thought the early 20th century was too tame at the Yeah, time. And, right, right. I, and then, of course, you know, as I, as I got educated, I learned that Mozart was the contemporary music composer of his day, and I, I got to love everything. But, you know, I, I came and learned music in reverse. Even with jazz, I, I didn't le learn to appreciate, like, you know, Dixieland or Swing till much later in my life. Uh, until, you know, I was in college and I really got a full understanding of everything and, and, of course, loved everything for many years by now. But at that time, I was much more just focused on um, uh, contemporary music. And I had this background in, in, in jazz and, uh, and then, of course, in, in the European traditions of classical music. Uh, but one thing that happened along the way, when my parents did not want me to go major in music, they wanted me to find something else to do. So the other thing that I wanted to do was I was interested in culture, especially because uh, I, I was one of those kind of awkward kids who wasn't very socially popular. Uh, I, I grew up in the preppy age, 
everyone wore Izod shirts. And, um, but uh, the people who were always very kind to me were the foreign exchange students coming to California, or not the, the people who just moved, sorry, just the immigrants. So I had a lot of friends from places like, uh, you know, Taiwan and India and Korea. And so I was very interested in, uh, you know, I said, oh, well, maybe I'll major in, non, uh, in, uh, in uh, international business. So what what is what what's one to do in the 1980s if you're inter interested in international business is you take Japanese. So I was in like these Japanese classes and in these Japanese classes, they included this culture section and I got to hear this music that was so, I, they weren't focusing on music, but the teacher would be talking about something and playing something in the background. And it was so opposite of everything I knew, everything I knew from bebop and free jazz and all this hyperactivity. There was this music that just floated and had no pulse. So there was a small seed of interest in music outside the West uh, at that point. I was very interested in going, what is this music? And I, I wouldn't find out till a few years later, till I was in college and taking world music classes about the court music of Asia. Is that, that's what it was, the, the breath rhythm. And, uh, and ironically, when I took the, the world music classes, I couldn't wait till we took talked about the music of japan but before they did that they talked about the music of korea and i said wait this is even more authentic than the japanese music and its use of the breath rhythm and also the diversity in korean music some of it reminds me of free jazz the shinawi this uh which they have you know free improvisation uh from um different sorts of ritual music etc so uh, so the, i have the three parts in my background i have the uh the the my beginnings in jazz and and also fusion. I'd say jazz fusion and funk and improvising to various kinds of rhythms. Uh, the the training in um, European classical music and then the long-standing interest in uh, non-Western music, primarily of East and Southeast Asia, but of all world music. Um, and during my years, I've built up my knowledge of non-Western music and ethnomusicological understanding of of lots of things. And of course, when you study music outside the West, you learn a lot more about the music of the West, uh, about what it means and uh, the values that we have and uh, the perceptions that we have and what had always been interesting to me. Um, like a lot of composers, I'm interested in non-Western music primarily for selfish reasons, because they introduced me to ideas that I hadn't thought of before. And it might not be for the original purpose of that music, but I still love it anyway. And I, I could absorb it like a sponge. I always, I always wanted to keep my ears open. I find even the older I get, the more I want to just absorb music uh, from the outside. And long story long, um, the, uh, you know, uh, living even in um, outside the U.S. has also been a very uh life growing influence uh the fact that i've kept moving around um that there is to a certain extent a, a, a especially pre-internet I, I know it's different now but i there was a, a kind of american bubble i i was in to a certain extent uh mm -hmm. and going to um outside going to live outside the u.s um, especially in Asia, where they're looking at all the Western perspectives equally, or perhaps less of the American one, that um, it, it had me rethink every musical value I had, uh, especially being exposed to European music 
rethinking it again in, in a way that I had not known. And so that caused a, a seismic shift, I think, in a lot of the ways that I uh, approach music and also helped me rediscover uh, uh, American music again, uh, uh, certain aspects of American music that I had not really um, ha- hadn't known as well as I, I thought I did. Um, it went because I, I was teaching students here about uh, you know contemporary music in both the U.S. and Europe, and I realized there was still so much more to learn, as is as there always is uh, to learn. And uh, so you know, so some funny tangents along the way, and I can't remember what what aha moments I had when I talked to Bob before. Perhaps we had talked about this, but um, I, I'm wondering if Bob actually played on that uh the Harrison uh concerto for organ and percussion CD did he play on that recording no we didn't make that recording you didn't make that recording yeah uh, it's i don't know if we had ever talked about that but oddly enough that that was what the my master's thesis was on was that work uh-huh. and really? the fact that you premiered uh-huh. that is kind of <laughs> I, I don't know if i had known you'd done the premiere of that and of course i i i was i first grew up in San Jose and i went to San Jose state to take my jazz saxophone lessons with mel martin at that time and uh so we have uh some interesting uh nexuses of uh, uh things that we had that were somewhat uh at least serendipitously kind of uh, connected uh in that now um of course uh, you you said when did i first get to know bob i guess you said that you were wanting to ask us about that or, or yeah that so i mean yeah later? we can get we can get into that now yeah i mean i'm some of the questions though just like hearing you talk about this stuff um you know talking about like uh you said japanese music or something like that i think it's kind of interesting i just like you know riffing on this type of stuff but um you know a lot of it well it's interesting that i found in, uh recently i mean i know anime you know has always been a big thing my fiance is really into anime and i've watched a lot of that stuff and the music's always interesting and there's like cowboy bebop that a lot of people are into that has some jazz, but it's an anime jazz thing. But um, they have this thing called like J-pop now, which there's some like pretty heavy hitter, like saxophone guys in New York that are doing it's jazz, but it's straight anime Japanese influenced, you know, from these anime type of sounds and the music from, that time in the in the 90s or the 2000s and all that and then they're fusing it with jazz and it's like amazing stuff so i don't know if you're into that or if you've hung you know check that out but that's just interesting that you said you know you have jazz and then you said all these cultural things yeah what one part of big part of my education as i say long story long uh i worked in a lot of record stores my life and i got to know a lot of music that a lot of people didn't in fact the joke is when i worked in record stores i made no profit at all i spent all my paychecks (laughs) on the employee discount picking up just random cds and like it's so funny now in the streaming age and apple music age i have thousands of cds (laughs) like you know now they're all at a although i have cds that aren't released and that's the interesting part and sometimes I, they're not the all students, on there the yeah. students are always interested i go well i find they have the most unique examples uh although they do eventually end up on youtube by not by me but i mean i do but there are things that i have uh but when you're talking about things like j-pop and uh k-pop and that was also something i had discovered along the way and of course i discovered um that type of music uh early on uh and i actually talk about um the whole idea of eclecticism and pop music, basically one of the impetus, I mean, there's also the hip hop 
you know, sampling and uh, uh, and all that. Uh, obviously, um, uh, Cantaloupe and things like that. Uh, but the one of the interesting aspects was the in Asia they were looking at Western music as one thing altogether. And when I when I grew up uh, in the especially in the nineteen 80s and even 70s two different genres do, do not touch they did not mix there you 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 liked top 40 or you liked new wave or you liked heavy metal or you liked hard rock which was different from heavy metal or you liked r&b and those things did not touch those are very separate things and the worst thing you could like was jazz if you were a kid the you were really heckled by the other kids for being into jazz. I got oh that's weird and old people music and, and like, I remember right. the, my 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 sweatshirt said jazz music of the eighties and it was really in the late seventies early eighties that jazz really did become a huge part of music education. So I was lucky to have that in my background because that that's really where the where they start having the jazz festivals all, all the time. Um, isn't that right, Bob? It's about the seventies and eighties where it really sure. became a huge part of so i i was very lucky to have had that I, before that people who wanted to study jazz they they studied classical music and they did jazz studies on the side or on their own or found someone to study with but um uh i i know a lot of people who were music ed majors but really just wanted to be jazz musicians uh from the previous generation but um the no j-pop i was my interest in pop music was because also it was unique and very quirky and strange from i, I especially got into like the uh, pizzicato five the uh, uh shabuya uh what's it called uh my my uh my mind isn't quite as sharp but anyway the the, the very important very eclectic music of the tokyo scene back in the 80s and the 90s and of course you still get this with the kawaii pop and things like that that they're they're doing it now but it's a little different now because in the internet age uh it, it's very common for people to be eclectic but really popular music wasn't as eclectic as now and, and k-pop is extremely eclectic in terms of how it will mix different styles altogether. and i even have a section in my jazz class and on how now jazz is a mainstream part of popular music you will have yeah. you know uh you know, European pop, especially like in like European and Asian pop, you will you'll break into a swing fill at any point. It's it's uh, no, no big deal. Uh, the um, and, uh, and or or you get things like you know um, baby metal where you know just the most yeah, extreme I've seen that one. <laughs> uh, differences where there's like idol pop mixed with um, uh, with heavy metal and it's just like it's a riot because it's like. Things you you didn't think could go together, but they managed to pull it off in the most incredibly fun and somewhat sophisticated way. Uh, yeah. I don't think they ever. I thought they did it on a lark, and they didn't realize how how uh, now they they like tour on the, do the regular metal tours that group, and it's so hilarious because they, the baby <laughs> metal one, yeah, to be, yeah, they they get they they're, they have a lot of fans, uh, but um, so yeah, of course, popular music has always been a. Uh, uh, a resource again i i try to take in everything as a sponge but of course j-pop when it was first becoming really big before even k-pop was really k-pop before the the big uh hollow wave in the late 90s um i would i was certainly following j-pop and then of course uh k-pop i didn't know as much about until i knew i was moving to korea but then i spent many years kind of learning about what was going on with k-pop and which is actually a very different thing uh it's it's very very much uh 
trying to merge these things, but in a very refined way, I, I think, in a, in a very different thing than, K, than J-pop was, at least when I, which, when I first started listening to J-pop, it was very raw and kind of eclectically just collages of things. That, uh, yeah, were, right. Uh, very cool. But anyway, yeah. I might mention at this time that Michael's written a fascinating work that we premiered and recorded, and it was called the Concerto for Jung and Percussion Ensemble, and right. certainly influenced by K-pop and J-pop. And uh, uh, we had so much fun with that. And uh, uh, I listen to that every once in a while, and I think what a fascinating piece and all kinds of new sounds that Michael was able to achieve out of Tiffany that I hadn't done before and the use of the rototoms and of course the use of the Korean jung. Yeah, right. Chinese jung, that instrument. Chinese jung. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah, that 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 was at the height of it where I was looking for um uh resources and of course some of those quotes and use of uh k-pop was what my daughter's suggestion might <laughs> yeah. but there was a lot of rhythms out of uh like uh uh a lot of the, the groups like uh boa girls generation um uh, after school a, lo a lot of different uh groups and and of course what those a lot of those things were like um so one of the big influences on that piece the last movement there was this uh group called after school in uh, uh k-pop that was supposed to be kind of like an imitation of the uh what, what's it called pussycat dolls but actually it's much better than pussycat dolls which is just like one singer and a bunch of pretty girls around they they all sang and they all danced k-pop is a lot of dancing and one of their things that they did was this uh they had they had this theme. They called it after school, and the whole idea is that they could have a constant group. And even though some girls would leave, they could introduce new people as if they're going through school and graduating. Um, and they thought they would do this uh, video inspired by uh, American marching band music, but especially of uh, the late 20th century, where it had more things like uh, uh, funk influence, kind of like the um, the urban marching bands. How great the the marching bands that come out of like African American schools that would add in a lot of the funk and and soul rhythms. And the 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 women there, it's like a girl group. I think it was at that point it was like seven women, and they actually learned how to play marching snare and and did the uh, things with the sticks uh, and playing and, and playing each other's drums. And the, it was actually quite a uh, interesting. So it was very it was very um, uh, inspiring for that work to, but and, and Bob mentioned about um, the use of the timpani in different ways. And if I, you don't mind me getting off a tangent there, um, it was because of Bob. Bob kind of like set me up for a big uh, change that would happen to me, especially as I moved to um, Korea. In that, um, to really, really uh, sonically be uh minimalistic not i don't mean like a minimalistic in minimalism although i i like minimalism and everything but minimal in that that how many sounds can i get out of an instrument uh and, and this was something i was aware of because you know, my my roommate was a percussionist when i was in college and he taught me all the different ways to play but it kind of helped me kind of re reconsider these sorts of things and one instrument that i absolutely positively hated was timpani i just couldn't stand the timpani uh 
I, I should also mention another instrument that I was very tired of. I could, wouldn't say I I hated, but I I was very tired of was marimba, like marimba quartets. That was a, a another piece, uh, earlier piece that Bob asked me to write, and it forced me to learn how do I use marimba in different ways to keep myself interested in the piece and thinking of all the timbral resources. And so the that next piece, not only did I use, I, I, well, there was six percussionists. So each of them had two timpanis. Ah, he turns into 12. Uh, but also <laughs> I used uh, uh, six percussionists playing two rototons each, which was another instrument that I, uh, actually my percussionist roommate hated. He said, oh, this is the lousiest instrument ever. So I, I definitely had to use that too in learning how to use those instruments in different colors. Um, so one of the things that had changed uh, to a great detail, I think, in a lot of the music that I had been writing in the past um, more than 10 years now, uh, got much more focused on things like timbre, but also in aleatoric notation and music that uh, is not necessarily notated in a conventional way. Um, kind of something I learned out of studying uh, Korean traditional music is through their traditional notation. It, it emphasizes very different values. So like there's a, mm. it sounds like improvising, but there's a, a certain gesture you have to do a certain moment, but it's a lot more flexible within it. So there's a lot of works recently that um, uh, are like that. Not necessarily the work that Bob and um, Udmi played, but um, a lot of my music these days have become more uh, uh, focused on that, uh, especially starting like with my bass clarinet concerto and, and beyond. Um, was more and also the learning about European music to a, a greater deal that I had because when I was living in the states we did not have the internet and so you were kind of at the mercy of what the teachers would have. Now I worked in music libraries so I did get a little wider knowledge than some of the students because I was always pulling stuff out of the library and listening to it. Um, it I helped me rediscover that, but as I said again, I got to rediscover. Even though, yes, I had known Lou Harrison and Harry Parch and all these people when I was younger, I got to re-examine like the American avant-garde and and uh, and when I mean avant-garde, I mean like um, you know uh, composers like Tenney or Feldman or um, Cage, especially of course, because most people only know him for one piece or two pieces, you know, <laughs> and uh, the the whole diversity of what he did. Yeah, talking about sitting on a timbre, though, or something like that. I mean, that's Feldman all the way. It's just like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pulling out time like that, yeah. Well, yeah, well, are you t you're talking more about uh, a, a late Feldman now? I guess so, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, late, late Feldman uh, really helps you just uh, appreciate things sometimes that don't change that much these days. Uh, the, the last, his later music, but uh, uh, his early music, of course, also, but... Uh, those those wonderful scores that he used to write, those graphic scores that uh, you sub, you know, even though they're written indeterminately, you can always tell kind of the work that is because of the atmosphere it creates, even though the colors are not always the exact same. And um, you know, King of Denmark being the most famous work of that that category. Um, but so yeah, so there is a lot of kind of rediscovering your own roots. So I, I don't claim to imitate European music, although obviously spectralism I became very interested in uh, in recent years. But rediscovering uh, a lot of American music uh, that I I knew about, but you know, got to appreciate from a different perspective. So what's some people that you would say in that thing? I'm just wondering, like, what are some composers that you found in American music that were more interesting? than you 
previously thought? Um, gee, should I bring up my notes for my class? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, I find it, it's kind of exhausting. My class is here because I'm always finding new people and saying, oh, should I include them or should I take them out? And, yeah. uh, but you know, some of the people, I mean, just even some of the lesser known works of John Cage, especially like his number pieces at the end and, and things like that. Uh, were very interesting. Uh, James Tenney's music I found very, very, which is ironic because you know he was just teaching at Cal Arts all those years when I was going to USC, but a very, very different perspective uh, on the approaches. But even re rediscovering Charles Ives, who was a composer I thought I knew, but I got to see him from a different light, you know, with those quarter tone pieces for piano, mm -hmm. uh, how interesting those are, and, and the, how the the chords aren't, I mean, the harmony in that is definitely not functioning as harmony. It, it's, it's building up colors uh, on the instrument when you put together. And, and so it even, the way I teach about harmony and stuff is, you know, the, the big shift in the, uh, around impressionism where people stop thinking of harmony as harmony, but more as just a color. And, uh, and it also depends on what instrument it's on and how it's used. And when Debussy planes fifths, he's not planing fifths on piano. He's imitating uh, Gamelon, uh, the, the, the overtone series of the, uh, the different gongs that are used in Gamelon. That, that's where his inspiration was when he, from uh, being one of the few people who knew about it from the, uh, the World's Fair in Paris in the late uh, 19th century. Um, they're, they're just like little things, little details that, and I, I suppose this happens to everyone in, with age, but I, I think being in a new environment and having to reevaluate my, uh, what I'd known about music, I think I had a lot of very uh, preconceived notions that uh, I, I was very, very, very influenced by um, uh, William Albright, who, who himself was a very eclectic composer, but after I got out of graduate school, my music was very much out of William Albright's kind of mold. Not not because William Albright wanted me to write music like that, but because William Albright's uh, whole musical approach was very attractive to me, and it was kind of like after all those years of study, he, he, he it really felt like home to me when I was studying with him and my musical ideas. Um, and I think I was kind of in that sort of mode for a long time but i have really moved to many different directions since then since i've even been at usf i i and, and while i did change and grow at usf and there's a lot of things actually i have to thank because of bob as we were talking about these pieces i had written uh when i uh was writing pieces for bob i had to push myself and and discover new things because the one thing i i can't do is sit in one place so it forced me to kind of think about how to use instruments and think about how to uh, use timbre and stuff. Uh, but living now in a different environment, uh, there's a lot that has changed. But one thing that has also changed is, as I say, I go back and look at my past, and a lot of my works either... I have two different kinds of paths I take. There are works that I have that look to my past, that look to ways I used to approach things in the past, and kind of rediscovering that. Or works that are just completely more very avant-garde in their approach, that they're much more based on um, sound and indeterminate notation. Like my, my most recent work, uh, uh, I wrote for uh, piano and jung, Chinese jung and uh, computer music. And uh, that, that piece is all about 
color and timbre and i mean there is a score but the score is very uh it has to be aleatoric because the uh there's very few actual pitch sounds in the music uh but even on that piece uh there's little pieces of bob mccormick influence on it because we have a a very significant instrument is the super ball mallet and i i did not know about a super ball mallet until i met bob and oh, man. Uh, that's that's yeah game changer I, I remember being in Daegu, Korea. We're trying to go to all the kids' uh, toy stores, trying to find the right friction mallet because no one had a no percussionist. We needed one for the orchestra at the Daegu Symphony, and we got a barbecue skewer, and it was perfect. Uh, but um, you got to find the one that's that specific rubber. It's right. a very specific rubber that'll work. Yeah, it's funny. I've done the same. <laughs> and so, like using that that on, I've used that on Jung too. And uh, so the 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 in that piece the pianist uh, I, as i made a joke to bob both on the junk part and the piano part i said this piece could always be played by two percussionists because the piano does a lot more playing the body of the piano i mean that she does do some real piano playing but even the actual sound of the piano has been modified it's prepared piano and the junk part uh i i laugh about the junk tuning the there's one note that must be in tune and every other note must not conform to any sort of standard tuning or intonation or equal temperament whatsoever the other thing also, I guess, and this is very recent, is I, I returned to writing um, electroacoustic music again, which is interesting because I, I taught electronic music for many, many, many years, but I, I did not write that much electronic music. I wrote a little bit now and then, but it was only since the pandemic where uh, we didn't have a lot of opportunities. And so we find opportunities where they may, and I have all this as we were talking about, I have all this technology that I own that I had underused. And I now, because, you know, we don't have all these concerts and stuff. I, what I do get invited to is like uh, electronic music festivals. And, and so I kind of returned to that. And that's kind of the, the newest thing I've gone to my life. And it was kind of a perfect timing because obviously that's very much in line with interested timbre and space and, uh etc and, and this last piece i wrote was very interesting because um you know i've had different approaches but like the piece before this i wrote actually the electronic part and wrote the the flute and clarinet part to go with it and of course all the sounds came from flute and clarinet because i played them and sampled them or whatever uh but this piece was very interesting because i had written the uh performance parts first and then wrote the electronic part, and I went, we were doing rehearsals, and I was traveling all over Korea because one of the performers, Jocelyn Clark, who's actually a Kyogun player, but she doesn't know how to play Jung, and she was using my Jung, she lives in Daejeon, and then Oh Set In, who's a pianist, she was actually in, um, she, but she's actually a composer. She was my former composition student. So I was, I was taking the high speed rail and I was conducting them. I had to conduct them because there was no way they had any sense of time. Of course, I just made a, a monkey click track for me to follow so I could never get lost. So it was, it was more of me just <laughs> showing them where the beat was. Uh, but that piece, I wrote it in. Uh, I could not finish it until we had many rehearsals until I could actually hear how the parts interacted. And they were great performers because they were reacting to the tape part I had written. And my tape part got modified to how they were playing and et cetera. So that, that, that's like one of the latest things I've been doing. But anyway, 
I keep mm, making, I keep going cool. off on tangents here. So, well, I think that's very exciting, uh, Michael, that you're writing uh, for electronics again. I think of two pieces that inspired me greatly, and one by James Tenney with Percussion uh, Group, and of course the Davidowski Synchronisms Number no. Five. Oh, of course, those are yeah. those are two of the most gorgeous works I've ever played, and I think the idea of percussion ensemble, chamber ensemble with different forms of electronic media is an area that uh, will continue to be explored and many new pieces will come of that genre. Yeah. And I think too, talking about how you're saying the aleatoric notation, because I watched one that you wrote recently, I think too, was accordion and was it saxophone, soprano saxophone? Right. That one was very interesting too. Just like you said, like I've known your music from when you were at USF which was around 2006, 2008. That's when I was there. And then listening to that piece, I'm like, wow, that's a lot different from what I know from him. So yeah, it's very interesting. Even I, I could hear it and feel it and be like, that, that sounds different from what he was doing, you know, prior. So yeah, it's great stuff. As I said, I, I, I'm kind of like a sponge and I, I hate kind of, even though I say I was exploring things in the past, I, I hate completely repeating myself. So I, I, I uh, am looking for new resources. But the piece you're talking about was the piece for saxophone and accordion. And the first movement's all just air sounds and breathing sounds. Yeah. That, that piece is actually like... about the um, when they um, did a remodeling of the Golden Gate Bridge. They put up a barrier so the, it would protect the pedestrians from the gusts of wind. But what ended up happening is it ended up being one large reed. And so there's this drone, this harmonic drone on windy days that come out of the Golden Gate Bridge. So the first movement is just about the wind and about out of the ocean uh, that is normally just existing there. And when it, and then the second movement is about the drone that's created through the bridge. Uh, and mm. being from San Francisco Bay Area, that was very fascinating uh for me and i and i and i should say when i write my music for uh european performers that's when i really kind of uh strip down often to to not my most primitive state and try to begin again but at the same time now that i am getting older um and because i am finding myself writing a lot i i do have a lot of exploration of past ideas and, and things in my music so you will hear uh from one piece to the next uh, a shift from things that are very very um uh very abstract to things that are much more concrete i guess we can go to the next question i mean because i guess we could talk about that too it was like when did you all first meet and I, we've talked about some of the you know early pieces but maybe yeah that's where we could say like bob do you remember when you first met michael and the first interactions and things like that well uh, michael joined the faculty at the university of south florida and i think we clicked and became friends right away uh just because uh, th there was a new composer and uh alluding to something Michael said, you know, that there's a real symbiosis between a composer and a performer working together. And so that's what I appreciate most about Michael. I think we were learning from each other uh, from the very first day we met. Hmm. And what was the first piece? Do you both remember the first one that you worked on together? Do you remember Michael? Culture samples. Culture samples. Yes. 
No, no, no. Uh, that was. Oh, I, I don't know if Bob played some of my earlier works, but it was that was the first work he he asked me to write, and he yes. was uh, commissioning a bunch of concertos for flute. That that was actually a really important piece. I'd already been thinking about things like about timbre, and I, you know, as I said, I wrote my uh, master's thesis um, on Lou Harrison, but the, no, not just timbre, but intonation. And one of the things that I learned from that really brought me out of the Western thinking was study of non-Western music was how they deal with intonation. But in that piece, I remember Bob was showing me all the different uh, percussion instruments uh, that he had pitched instruments. And he was saying, okay, uh, oh, I have this gong. This, if you need a lower gong sound. And of course, it, you know, you can't do anything about the fact that it's not in tune with marimba. Right. And I said, Oh no, that's good. I'll use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I want that. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that piece, um, uh, with Bob, uh, what I what I like to joke about it is it was everything that people hated. I tried to put into one piece. So I had minimalism, twelve toed music, and obnoxious sounds all in one piece, and that was great. <laughs> so and, and that 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 piece was a bit, that piece was a turning point, uh, leading me to now. That that piece was um, where Bob had really caused a seismic. Uh, shift in the way I thought about things. Actually, it was the piece that I, I re, you know, I talked about returning to um, uh, electroacoustic music. Well, I returned to using serialism, but in my own way. It's not in necessarily in a way one might think, but that I, I, I had always had flirtations with serialism, and I occasionally come back to it. Uh, but that piece, uh, it just made sense to do it in that piece because of uh, how things were working together, and I and as it always happens that when there's something I did years ago and then hadn't done for many years, when I come back to it, it's so much easier now. Like electronic music is so much easier for me to write now. And when I went back, to, I go, oh, this is so simple. <laughs> and I could be, you know, it generated its own materials. It's not like um, uh, not like what we learned in theory class. It's uh, being kind of improvisational with the high idea. But anyway, yeah, uh, Bob was very, um, like, I don't know what, it, if I had met Bob, because like, I'd come there for a uh, a college music society conference, like only like six months before, and because I was at that college music society conference, I had just happened to apply for the job. I wasn't on the job market, but I there was a college music society conference that I came to that the brass people played a work of mine, and I applied to the job, and Bob was on the search committee, and that that's how I uh, first got to know him was, uh, and I was already inspired by him because of that. And of course, um, there are a lot of symbiotic relationships with percussionists, but not all percussionists can, you can have the same sort of symbiotic relationship as Bob McCormick. He really is truly an inspirer and an innovator and really knows how to get the creative minds and juices flowing with people. Um, not all percussionists are like that. Some are, but he especially is the master of that. And I, and I also think that we had a symbiotic back, uh, relationship because he also has a jazz background too and little things that and we're both California boys. Although I don't know, are you actually from, did you grow up in California or you just ended up back there for your studies? Uh, I finished high school in California and stayed there for all my, my studies in college, yes. And was that Southern California or Northern California? Southern California. Yeah. So he, he moved north and I later would move south. So I grew up north and I moved south and he started. Yeah, uh, right. Exactly. What, what was that? Uh, Long Beach State? What was Where was it that you were also at? Northridge? I was or? at uh, Cal State Los Angeles. Cal State, Cal State LA. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, so yeah, so we we definitely had uh, there was an instant uh, love, uh, and actually, you know, Bob has a lot to do even with where I am now because he he knew uh, uh, Park Unhe out here, who was the person who hired me here. Well, you know, I learned a lot of my knowledge from Bob. I was lucky to have a, a secondhand example. So a lot of the things I learned from Bob, I not only got the pleasure of learning firsthand when I worked with him, but because I happened to be married to a composer who had worked with Bob many times. In fact, I think I learned about Super Bob Mallet secondhand indirectly through my wife who got learned about it through, because she didn't know what the Super Bob Mallet was at that time. Uh, so he he and uh, my wife also had worked together with many different works. So I, and I, I have to say, I learned a lot from those examples as well. Uh, my my wife being Ji Chen Ji Sun So uh, that was... Uh, he he was definitely um I have to say he's unlike basically any percussionist I've worked with. <laughs> Even though oh, he's the but he he is has to be because I, I bet I've bet way too many nervous marimba players or something <laughs> that, that you know are not very open minded. Uh but uh I also have met many fine percussionists though who who are who are very open minded. Uh, I I worked with one recently for a, a flute and uh uh and uh vibraphone piece and she, she was absolutely wonderful. Uh, to work with and was had a fully open mind about anything uh but he really uh has been uh responsible for i think if not promoting maybe even bringing to the forefront the careers of many composers uh because of his working with them not only in giving them the inspiration pushing them to go and create putting them in the situation where they have to figure out something to do with something uh but also, you know, the fact that he's recorded their works and featured their works. And uh, Park Hay hey would be a, a, a perfect example of a composer who uh, she's made a name for herself as a writer of percussion music in, in Korea. And f- for no small part, Bob has really been a primary factor in that uh, genesis. Um, so uh, there's a lot of composers who uh, are, are deeply indebted to him and for his 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 constant request for us to write new pieces and push us into the situations like when we don't want to write a marimba quartet, but we have to figure out how to do it and <laughs> things like that. Um, right. That, uh, it, Cause it really is, you know, there is something about being in the situation where you're pushed to write and you have to write and you're in these situations where you're out of your comfort zone, where you do the most growing. Uh, and and mm-hmm. especially if you're willing to take risks and, and certain risks sometimes pay off more than others, but it really puts you into the uh, the situation where you can uh, learn and grow. And when I went to Korea, I was expected to write an incredible volume of music, much more than uh, perhaps one would write normally in the American academic situation. And I had to find new ways to write pieces and go about pieces because there was like a constant... Um, uh, push to write uh, new new pieces uh, all the time, and so um, I think when you're a composer and you have to be forced into a prolific situation, you generally do grow because uh, you 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 can't think too much. You have to keep moving ahead, and you have you to find ways yeah. to mm-hmm. keep yourself interested in the music. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, so, right. Uh, and and so uh, Bob was a, a big, you know, uh, he in in my lifetime as a composer, and I also know for my wife that uh, that we would have not not been the same people that we are now um, had we not crossed his path and uh, been been given the opportunities and so. Um, so selfless opportunities uh bob just was just so dedicated as a uh performer and a composer himself of course he's also a very good composer himself um he uh gave the a lot of composers the opportunity to uh do things that uh we would have never done and i think changed everyone ever, everyone who had the experience of working with them in in a, an important way in their life that that they were never the same person again and it was always in the positive the energy that he has that he brings out in music and uh inspiration is especially infectious uh there, there's a, a lot of times where people are very nervous working with composers like they might be interested in new music but sometimes like the people who are like in these new music groups who play all the time are still they're a little bit nervous about what uh composers might write for them uh where uh, Bob was always like, just throw it at me. <laughs> we'll do it, you know. Just, just let's yeah, just see. We'll make it, it work, you know. Uh, uh, he he always was uh, in the capacity of just uh, my favorite story. Like yeah, and I I know I'm talking way too much, but my favorite story was when I taught orchestration. How we would have the tour of the percussion studio, and then. Um, Bob would like show us all the instruments to show us how to play. He says, he says, okay, I have to leave now, but you guys can like do anything you want with any of the in instruments. Uh, the, nothing's going to break anyway. And so I remember, you know, uh, some of my students say, oh, I'm going to bow everything in the room. <laughs> like, you know, right. and he, he would let the composers go in there and play around with the equipment. And that is such a, a valuable thing that I don't think everybody gets to do. A, a lot of students when the, it's, a lot of times it's frustrating teaching orchestration that all you have i mean at least we have youtube examples and that's great because every percussion company is trying to sell that new gong they have but you know there that hands-on experience that uh he would allow the composers to get or and other students to get on just experimenting and uh for for no short measure that's kind of where i started collecting instruments and putting them in my house because we would uh both my wife and i every time we have a piece we we pull out the instrument and see what sounds we can get out of it or uh, uh find something that uh and so we have often have to have instructional videos for the performers to uh use so so it's interesting. So Bob, just, I mean, wondering, because as you said, I'm trying to think of all the, like you said, there's been flute, um, concerti or whatever that you did and there's culture samples and I know the marimba one and other things. So I, I don't know if you could talk, Bob, maybe about some of the interesting pieces that stand out in your mind and maybe not just, you know, one or. Well, certainly I think the concerto for Jung was really unique and and also marimbatures uh which was in what eight short movements i believe michael yeah yeah eight to ten yeah yeah and mm -hmm. uh, again michael getting all kinds of different sounds and putting them together to uh to make really interesting uh uh pieces and how did you guys workshop those pieces i mean was it what was the process i guess i'm always interested in how a composer and a performer work together so 
what were those interactions like when you would workshop pieces? Or I guess it was usually in percussion ensemble, I guess, because a lot of it was for the ensemble. A lot of it was for the ensemble. And when he mentioned uh, cultural samples, I remember I just acquired uh, two octaves of smaller tie gongs and uh, a few other instruments that I had. So uh, I brought all these composers in one at a time. And I said, well, these are my new instruments. Why don't you try to write for them? And I got a lot of wonderful pieces out of that. But Michaels did the exact work uh, instruments that I showed him because none of of the others used so many tune gongs and so on. And I was looking for pieces that would incorporate all those instruments. Yeah, get your money out of it. Yeah, get <laughs> right. your money out of it. Exactly. <laughs> For sure. It, it generally just started with a, 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 at least the early work started like with a discussion uh, yes. of, of mm-hmm. what he had. The the one thing there's kind of a, a, a nature about me is like I don't really take myself too seriously. So a lot of my pieces are about just fun and what sort of kind of. So I, I get a lot of. Um, sonic inspiration uh and i try to implement it uh it's it's not all that methodical in in reality uh even though i throw in things like serial music computer music but it's more or less kind of a uh a stream of inspiration and kind of this bursting energy i i would work with after i would meet him now the 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 piece about Jung and uh, percussion, of course, Bob did not ask me to write for timpani or something like that, but that came out of mm-hmm. those experiences of each of those pieces uh, uh, leading up to that. And um, I remember telling myself, okay, I'm going to write for timpani now. I'm going to challenge myself this way. Yeah. And the beauty of that is the aspect of both, Rototoms and timpani work so well with the jung because what's jung? It's about these low strings going do, you know, the kind of the sound quality and the timbre of it actually works so well in ways that I couldn't imagine. As I say, a lot of times I don't really think so deeply. I it's just like I want to have fun. I want to put these things together, and there's all this serendipitous moments that will happen in these pieces that. And also when I'm working with performers, performers will do something that I said, wow, I, I, I was so focused on this section of the piece. I didn't realize that was so cool sounding. And, and, and like, yeah, uh, so right. there are, and, and, and a lot of times when I'm working with putting together pieces with people, to a certain extent, they're not finished until I really get to hear how performers are implementing them. And there's like little ways I'll tell them to perform when they're doing it. So that was, so it was like a collaboration along the way as the piece came out and discovering and doing little refinements uh maybe not to the degree that Skelsey used to put together his pieces where he'd improvise with performers for months and figure out where the piece was to be written but i still think there's a lot of that uh in, that uh when the the pieces are being rehearsed there are still some rough edges and i and i don't even mean about like changing notes or anything like that it's more like about like getting the dynamics and the articulations and and little little things beyond notes and rhythms that are really how pieces can work and and more timbral in in aspect so yeah and finding what the piece really means because i think even sometimes a composer or whoever doesn't maybe understand where it's coming from until you like they hear it or you hear it in a certain way and then you're like oh yeah i guess maybe this is relational to something else that's happened before but you have to step away for it from a while so 
the 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 other thing that was it's so fascinating working with Bob is you really get to see the dance of percussion music. Um, and percussion music is a very different thing uh, when you just hear it on a recording than when you see it in person. And I'm so happy now that we have uh, generations of people who like the experiencing music by seeing perform. Now that we have, you know, the streaming and the YouTube uh, times, a, a great example is my mom who, you know, she likes Muzak and Yanni and uh, new, new Age. I think I said New Age earlier when I meant to say New Wave. But anyway, uh, new, new Age music and but yet she saw a piece like Clolter samples and she thought it was just so much fun to see the people playing the hanging gongs and the pot gongs and the omglocken and because and it was just so exciting that it could communicate to people who wouldn't necessarily be inclined to like contemporary music, but they can see the energy, the effort the musicians put in and the coordination and percussion being probably the most physical instrument, uh, at least in terms of real estate and moving around. Uh, I, I mean, I learned that years earlier because my 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 roommate uh percussionist uh that i wrote a piece for i used everything but the kitchen sink in and watching him play that piece where he's running around all over the place compared to listening to it where it says oh timbre change like a patch change <laughs> on a synthesizer was yeah. a, it's a very different experience to uh go through the piece uh orally as opposed to looking at it and, and it's fun to actually do pieces both ways sometimes you should be kind of just listening and not trying to have the physicality. It's it's like reading subtitles where it gives away the plot before you, the person says it. You know, sometimes it is yeah. nice to just hear the result. Uh, but at the same time, uh, watching the physical actions. I mean, there's a lot of that in piano and string playing, too. I think that there's a lot of excitement. But I think percussion, pretty much most instruments, but especially when they're dealing with like a lot of the larger instruments and the different playing techniques on them, uh, it's very communicative to to human beings, uh, and it's really um, a, uh, a bridge to a lot more people uh, uh, to open their minds than um, a lot of instruments have the possibility, other instruments have the possibility of doing, just, just because uh, this, the sounds are so clear and invigorating to people because they see the physical action and the physical effort going into it. I mean, it's funny too to say that because that's like Harry Parch. I remember oh, watching yes. videos of him, and he was always like, "I should make them, you know, jump rope and get in shape," because like that was the thing with him. Is it was about the theatrical because it was about like a, it was almost like a not a seance, but whatever you know, some sort of ritual when you played the music. Right. It was like a ritual. It was like a, a huge thing, and that's involves dance. It involves movement of the body, and I mean all that stuff. So. Yeah, it's a good parallel, I think so, too. I mean, to what we were just talking about, the past with Harry Parch and probably all percussion music, to your point. I think there's just some sort of um, movement and uh, something about it yeah, that makes it very natural <laughs> and interesting to see, as you said. Well, certainly just watching those instruments, how they're designed and put together in Harry Parch itself is just a, I, I'm so jealous that Bob got to do that. I mean, when I found out he had worked with Harry Parch, I'm going, oh, man, he's one of the luckiest guys. <laughs> right. uh, uh, but uh, and I, I teach. Yeah. Harry Parch is one of the people I teach the students in Korea about and uh, sh show them examples of just to. Uh, I, I, they, they, they did it in the U.S. when I was studying. Actually, talk about uh, Harry Parch to a certain degree, um, at least that the guy existed. I don't know how much music they played by him, but at least we knew about him. But uh, he would be another composer, yeah, that I, I've certainly rediscovered in recent years. Uh, 
some sometimes it's hard to get access to some of those materials and the scores and things like that. It's unfortunate, but um, oh yeah, I've never seen a Harry Parch score, so <laughs> maybe Bob can tell us about what Harry Parch scores look like. Um, I, I suppose they're different depending on the p- instrument they're for, but um, yeah, most of the time, I, I mean, there's great videos uh a resource and today when you're teaching you especially when you're teaching in a language that the students don't speak i i always include a lot of online resources for them to look at in terms of scores and recordings and videos uh i but i I generally try to get a score of everything but except for a few small pieces i have a hard time getting access to harry parch scores uh uh but maybe bob can tell us a little bit about like what harry parch scores were like yeah i am interested it certainly was not graphic very often, and it was very specifically notated. And you would have triangles maybe for one set of instruments, squares for another set of instruments, maybe rectangles and that type of things. But the notation was quite traditional in terms of rhythm. And then he would use the, you know, the different uh, note symbols for different pitches on different instruments. So was it on a staff? Because I know, yes. you know, the most of it was on a staff. Yeah. Yeah. Still, but yeah. Okay. Hmm. That is interesting. How you and, would and, get and that how does one get those scores? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am, am not sure. You know, there is a Harry Parch website and uh, there are examples of partial scores probably back right. in his text, uh, Genesis of a music and oh, yeah. in various articles, uh, I don't think I have any of the scores, or I would certainly share them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not like he, I don't think he published them because it's like, who else is going to play my no, music he, other he, than he the people that have them? He was very private of, of a lot of that kind of thing. And Yeah. I'm only aware of two published pieces, and they're for very conventional uh, instruments, although I think there's one. It's probably like throughout. the guitar one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, there's pieces for a harp where you do some score to Tura tuning, but uh, yeah. not not a lot else that you can find out that's published. So what's the most recent thing that that you all have worked on? I, mean, I guess that, that's usually the next thing I go into. Um, like, I know that, you know, Bob, you played that piece with Unmi that was... Uh, and we took the duo t- piece and made a a, a, a trio with with a virtuoso literal player named Zach Hale played with us. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> right. So this one was specifically written for that one concert, correct? That's correct. So that was a new piece. Okay. That was a new piece in a premiere. That's right. I'm getting them mixed up on this <laughs> the concert. So um, how did that one come about? And I guess that's the most recent one. So what was the collaboration with, with that? What was the inspiration? And why did this come about? Well, when me and I wanted to do some duo works, and we commissioned Michael to, to write this piece for us. Gotcha. So it was for piano and percussion. So what was the inspiration that you had for that, Michael? Like what um, kind of elements did you use? What was the thought process? This comes out of a period in uh, 2021 uh, where I just had, actually there were some challenges in my life I was dealing with and the therapy was composing. Mm -hmm. And I had probably written... um, from the period of February through, uh, well, it's still going on, but the I had just become extremely prolific in output. And Bob and Unmi had asked me to write this piece, and uh, 
this is a work actually that refers more back to kind of older ideas uh and it's but it's one of the things that um when I was young, I was always very interested in complex music, and it was in fact uh meeting Lou Harrison because when I wrote my thesis on him because he's from you know close to the San Francisco Bay Area where i my family's from, I went and talked to him and interviewed him and stuff when I was writing my master's thesis and one thing the great thing I learned from Lou Harrison was about simplicity, how wonderfully magical just the most simplest ideas can be, and so this work. While it isn't simple in terms of, I'm sure, putting it together and performing it because the rhythms and stuff aren't always, uh, they can be deceivingly more challenging, even though it's very, eh, mostly very simple stuff. Uh, so a lot of the piano parts, even monophonic, uh, just touches of polyphony and chords in it. Uh, and the percussion is uh, solely unpitched percussion. And, you know, a, a lot of the percussion I'd used over the years, even though I was discovering timbre, were more more pitched percussion. I mean, I certainly have used a fair amount of unpitched percussion, but this piece I specifically uh, only used unpitched percussion parts. It's based on, like, dance forms, actually. Um, and so that, that that's kind of where the percussion part is very... Uh, important in that the the percussion is kind of like a, a a dancer in interaction with the pianist uh even in the the slower movements where the dance is very subtle or smooth i should mention this as this was a period of time where i was extremely prolific i think i wrote about 20 pieces in about four months or something like that but i had come i'd written this piece and so i i countered i don't know like Two months later, I gave them, oh, here's another piece. <laughs> and this one's very, very complex and virtuoso. <laughs> it's like the, it's entirely the opposite. Again, it's still, to a certain extent, kind of me looking back at other things I've done in my life. And my music at one time was very, very uh, inspired by uh, Elliot Carter, but still connected to uh jazz and things like that um maybe a little bit of uh Colin Nancaro and things like that um so this piece is much more about kind of stemming back from that kind of influence so we had the simple piece and the complex piece so i guess i have to write them the abstract piece next or something the electroacoustic yeah. piece uh, the next one but uh it, but this uh these are two individuals that uh, have inspired me a lot, and Unmi is a very is another person that I have a lot of tangential connections with, uh, and a lot of people would think it's because that I taught at USF, but of course she came there after. Uh, I, I had not known her, um, and uh, but I had found working with her to be such a delight uh, uh, to. Uh, put together things and um, and so yeah we have tangential because she went to, she went to Eastman too and uh, I moved to Korea she moved from Korea <laughs> right it, it is very of, interesting uh, mm -hmm. a, a lot of interesting and she's kind of like uh, uh, what Bob is for percussion she does for the piano and is very very open and very you know you could put something in front of her that would make most pianists shake and she'd just say oh okay let's see what yeah, let's see how I could put this together. Very, very great attitude and easy to work with and easy to talk to. And 
uh, all around pleasant uh, experience. Um, so it, it's, it was kind of like a, a no brainer going, Oh, well, Bob and me, I mean, I, that, we, that, 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 that definitely is a, a firstly a fantastic combination of people. Um, and certainly people that, you know, you could, who like variety, who definitely uh, like having different approaches to different pieces. So um, for me, it's, uh, it, it was certainly something that I intended on doing. Um, uh, and I, you know, that this was also kind of nice because it was one of those pieces I was asked to write without any sort of specific deadline. So I just kind of, you know, just got, very obsessed with it at one point and wrote it for them, you know. Yeah. And same thing with the second piece. Uh, uh, it's uh, we're, we're so often as composers either working by um, a deadline given for a performance or a deadline for the academic calendar that you have to get something done by. Uh, but this was just kind of like writing for fun. I want, to, I probably had something else I was supposed to be writing actually at that time, but I said, no, I got to write something for Bob and, and me now. <laughs> I have this other performance coming up sooner. I, 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 I had that in my mind and was able to really, uh, uh, come up with it, uh, very naturally. So uh, I, I should say, uh, yeah, but that's great too. I think a lot of the times maybe we don't just have that time to just play music. You know what I mean? It's like funny when it's a hobby for somebody, you just play music, but it's like when it's your career, it's like deadline, deadline, you got to get it done, you know? So that's actually very nice that you had time to just be like, you know what? This isn't for a deadline. It'll be whenever. That's actually probably, I don't know. Maybe deadlines are good sometimes, but it's also nice not to have them (laughs) as well. So, well, I guess we can start wrapping stuff up. I mean, I guess the, usually the last thing I always ask is like, what's, what's next, you know, for each person or together. So, uh, I guess I can ask Bob now it's like, what's, what things do you have on the docket? And, um, is there any plans for you to do anything with Michael in the future as well? Well, we are always working on plans. I think we put the seed in for maybe a piece with electronics and and various percussion and piano. But the the big event coming up is near the end of March where we have uh, the Camp Festival. Contemporary Art Music Project Festival, and that'll happen in St. Petersburg in Tampa, Florida. And uh, we have a number of exciting premieres uh, that will involve yourself and a number of percussion works with Kevin Von Campen and myself. And so that's going to be a major event and worth flying in from Korea to see. When is that? Uh, March 24th through the 26th. Yeah, okay. And uh, we certainly must credit the visionary of all this, who is Unmiko. She is unbelievable in how much uh, work and what a great vision she's had and her organizational skills. And I remain in awe. And for those listening that can't see, we have video, we're not recording, but she is, uh, yes, saying thank you very much. She is on screen, but not on the voice. So, (laughs) yes, thank you, Unmi. So yeah, that's so that's what's going on with Bob. So how about you, Michael? What's the next things going on? I know you're composing. <laughs> the, the most immediate thing I have coming up with next is uh, I on uh, February twenty um, fifth, actually a day before my birthday, I have an event with the Solar Artistic Orchestra, uh, and what we are doing is um, I'm using a lot of my uh, research and 
also sharing it with students. So the uh, it's we're doing chamber music for strings because of pandemic and masks and everything. So uh, so I started with uh, some performances of some of my music for uh, various combinations of string and string piano, string piano and voice. And then for the next two hours, the uh, the group is reading student works. And, oh, cool. Um, uh, and and so right now students are submitting stuff to be uh, uh, read by this and and this is a collaboration I have it's a former student not a composition student per se but someone who's in one of my classes who has uh, become a conductor in the area and created her own orchestra and so we often have uh, worked together and brainstormed on ideas uh, a conductor named Kang Soo Kyung. Uh, and uh, she has uh, definitely made a, a name for herself. Uh, and so, and of course, as I already mentioned, I already wrote a second piece for Bob uh, and Unmi, but uh, but certainly, uh, definitely, th there's more to come and 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 more ideas. I also have something, uh, another electroacoustic piece uh, that I'm writing for the Daegu Computer Music Festival, and I have something for the Jeju New Music Festival for woodwinds. Uh, there, there, there's a. A bunch of little things. Uh, there's a piano duo of mine uh, being played at the uh, in a few days <laughs> at uh, at USF. Uh, so that that's coming up. Um, yeah, during uh, the pandemic, there's a lot of creative ways in which we've had to try to do things and 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 put things together. And I'm I'm sure there's a lot of things that I'm forgetting or so a lot of things that happen sometimes that I don't even realize are happening these days. Uh, uh, but I, I mostly am just in my house these days. I, I rarely even have, have to leave the house except for going to the grocery store sometimes uh, for, for school business, but we're still like mostly doing stuff online here. So Straight, uh, we're, yeah. we're, as, as you know, we, we, our academic calendars and start to March. So right now is our, actually our, our break period so i um, didn't know that i but, heard you said you were on break and i was like what How are you right right and actually it and there's a real true holiday coming up like this coming week it's the lunar new year mm. but um the so everything but yeah so the during break is when we're doing these uh concert and readings for the students which is actually a good time because during the semester the these days somehow students are always so busy and it's hard for them to do a lot of extracurricular stuff because uh they're they're so constantly tasked <laughs> with things to do it seems i don't know how the pandemic made us busier but it somehow did it it did <laughs> Well, great. Thank you. I think that's where we'll leave it there. Um, yeah, I appreciate you both being on here and talking with us. It was a good uh, talk and catching up with both of you. Thank you so much, Zach. This was an honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>